wasn't for education, I really wouldn't be in this room with you today, fam. I probably would be incarcerated. I definitely would be in the hood still. It, it's had a major and profound impact on my life. Hello, Titan family, and welcome to Fram and Friends, a podcast with Cal State Fullerton President Fram Vergy. I'm Matt Olson, Fram's Communications Director, and given both the academic pedigree and life story of Fram's next guest, I can honestly say I have no idea where this conversation is going to go, and I can't wait to get into it. So here to introduce that guest is your host and our president, Fram Vergy. Well, hello, everyone. This is Fram, and I'm here talking to, I, I was trying to figure out how I was going to describe you, Chris, my, my, uh, my colleague, uh, uh, professor, I think, I think uh, friend, I think brother is probably the best. From a different mother. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. So I am talking with Chris Brown, who is uh, a professor in our criminal justice uh, program, uh, Chris, how long have you been at CSE? I've been here since 2004 as a part-time lecturer, then a full-time lecturer, and now associate professor. Yeah. So, Chris, you know, you were, uh, before I came to the campus uh, two, about, just about two years ago now, uh, when uh, I found out I was going to come down and be president at Cal State Fullerton, I had some presidents of other campuses, I won't name them, who said, whatever you do, watch out. Uh, for the CFA president or the CFA rep on the campus. And I, they weren't referring to you in particular, but just generally, um, you know, pay attention. And so I have to tell you, when I came, you know I'm an, I'm an old labor and employment lawyer, so, you know, my antenna were up anyway. And I met you, and uh, I was telling Matt today, I think it took me about five minutes before I knew uh, I could trust you, uh, that you would tell me what's what, uh, that you were never going to give me a line, uh, that I could try things out on you. I could say, hey, what about this or what about that? And you would tell me straight, hey, that's a good idea, or don't do that, right? Yes, sir. So where does that come from? Where does, it, where does that uh, openness and straightforwardness come from, Chris? Well, most people probably don't know, but I grew up in Watts. And that's a place where you can't mince words and you can't be shucking and jiving because it could cost you dearly sometimes your life. So I've always been taught to be straightforward and honest and open. And I have a big mouth and I try to use it wisely. Uh, so tell me, tell, me what, tell me what you think our relationship is like. You know, Fram, I love you like a brother. I trust you. I had my apprehensions in the beginning because of your former position, but I always judge people by what my interpretation of how they behave rather than what the history is because, you know, I'm a Christian and, and I take that to heart. And talking to you, I realize you're a real solid brother, even though you're on the other side, you know, <laughs> before. Uh, but I just see a lot of genuineness and you and your wife are just, hey, you like my family. And I love you. Absolutely. And I love you, too. It's, it's, it's totally mutual. People who listen to this are probably going to think we're kind of crazy, and they're right. They're right. Yeah. <laughs> we're right. But, um, you know, uh, if we're going to get things done on this campus, and if we're going to uh, move the institution forward, we have to do that together. And uh, I have great respect for your professional acumen, but what, what attracts me to you, what makes me uh, uh, believe in you is... Um, 
uh, what's on the inside, what your values are. So uh, talk about growing up a little bit. Uh, who were the influences in your life that uh, made you the man that you are today? Well, I have to mention my mother. She died at a young age of 51. She had me at 13, and she always taught me to respect women, respect my elders, and respect the church. Even though she wasn't highly educated, she was a very wise person. And uh, she was the kind of mother that uh, her belief that I brought you in this world, I would take you out. <laughs> and she meant it. <laughs> I didn't feel like I can get away with anything with my mother. She had done it, seen it, and don't try to play me, that kind of attitude. But the sweetest, most giving person I've ever met in my life. Uh, always loved my mama. So I remember when I was a kid, uh, the thing that caused me the most heartbreak or the most angst was when uh, I did something that I wasn't supposed to do, and my, my, my mom in particular didn't know about it yet. And I don't know what it was in me, but I had to tell. I had to tell on myself. And that I could not live with myself until I finally told mom, this is what I did. I'll give you an example. I remember I was about eight years old. I lived in San Pedro, and, uh, you know, I was allowed to go out and ride my bike in the neighborhood as much as I wanted, but there were boundaries I could not go beyond. And so one day, me and a bunch of my buds, we decided we would go for a long bike ride, and we rode, we were, we rode way the heck out of there. We were, we did crazy things. We were driving on streets that we shouldn't have been on. And we came home, and our parents never knew where we were and what happened. And uh, we thought we were all that. We thought we were the, the we thought we were all that. <laughs> but I couldn't not tell her. I had to go to her and say, Mom, I made a mistake and I did this. And I have no idea what it was that made me do that. But I feel like uh, that is part of the character building that I had that I knew she'd know no matter what. You have that? Uh, in some ways, but I was afraid to tell my mother when I had misbehaved because uh, there were consequences. You know, most parents would use a switch. My mother would put up the entire tree. <laughs> so I was very cautious about what I told. I was a good boy. Didn't get in a lot of trouble, but, you know, I had my moments. So I know you've got kids of your own. Uh, how, did, how did you uh, parent your sons differently than you were parented? Well, it's quite different because I grew up in Watts, and Watts was a very dangerous place, especially for young African-American men. My boys born and raised in Irvine. The kind of issues that they had to deal with was a little different than mine. I was sometimes dealing with life and death issues. They were dealing with issues with race and identity. So it was really important for me to instill in them that, hey, you're African-American men, and when people look at you, even though you're biracial, people are going to see black. And so I took them to Watts, and that was a very profound experience for them because <laughs> what they witnessed in the projects was not the kind of things they witnessed in Irvine. So I wanted them to be certain and know who they were. Hey, your mom's white and your dad's black, but society's going to see you as black. It's important that you recognize your identity. And they, they have. They've been really good boys. One of them's currently working as a lawyer, corporate lawyer. Hey, Fran, I, I, I think know. he had a little influence there. And I'm proud of him. <laughs> and the young one wants to be a law enforcement, so he'll be working as a cop probably within the next year. And where did he graduate from? They both graduated <laughs> from Cal State Fullerton. Proud Titan There parents. you go, baby. <laughs> Absolutely. Where you should have gone. Mm -hmm. 
No, no. I mean, it, we, our, our listeners also have to know that you were an anteater. Yes, a proud UCI graduate. Yeah. And that you were also, you also played a little ball there. No, that's an exaggeration. I watched a lot, but I wanted uh, to play. <laughs> you, come on now. You, we know that you love to play, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. But, but get, that's because you're, you're, how tall are you, man? 6'3". Is that all? You sure walk taller than that. Must be those lifts that you wear in your shoes, dude. <laughs> there are no lifts in my shoes. <laughs> that on the record. That's on the record. <laughs> either, either that or it's always the hat that makes you look taller. That right? could be it, yes, sir. <laughs> so it is true that you are the best-dressed man on this campus. Uh, what, what motivates you to, to, to style up like that? I think I have a lot of competition for the best-dressed title, but I believe I'm at a job and I should dress professionally. So oftentimes that means a suit and tie, and I have probably 80 to 100 suits, so I have a lot of suits. I'm not quite a Mel DeMarcus on the shoe level, but I have more than a dozen pair of shoes, probably closer to two dozen. And I generally try not to wear the same suit in the, in the same semester, so I get away with stuff that, you know, people say, oh, it's a new suit. No, it's a little old, but <laughs> haven't worn it this year yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> Where does that come from? Uh, most of my suits came from the Hollywood suit outlet. And no, I don't mean where you buy them. I mean, where does that idea or that uh, drive to be that way come from? What was it in I your background? I grew up in the hood, and I, I witnessed a lot of people that dress fly. Okay. And I don't know if I'm as fly as the people from the hood, but I'm in Orange County, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, see, we, know, we know you when we see you coming. We yes, know who sir. it is. Yes, sir. Which is a good thing. But, you know, the Bible says the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, they have no clothes, and they're as beautiful as anything in the world, and, and I can't compare to that. I mean, this is just some physical clothes. I mean, Please don't try to do that on campus. <laughs> I promise I'll. That, that would not be good. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so I walk across campus with Fram a lot, and since he's president, he, he gets noticed and recognized, and a lot of people come up to him. And I walked across campus with you the other day, and I told Fram afterwards, more people came up. Like, you were more visible. And most it was uh, most impactful with the students. I noticed your relationship with the students that, that would really stop and you'd engage with them. Um, does that develop in the classroom uh, over time? Like, how do you build those connections with your students? Well, my legal name is Gregory Christopher, and Gregory means gregarious, and Christopher is Christ-like. So I'm a very social person, and I've always been that way. I've never judged people by their socioeconomic standing, race, creed, or color. And if I see students of color, I really especially try to communicate with them because oftentimes they don't see a professor like me. So it's important that they know I'm here. And... It's important that they know that I see them and recognize them. So as you saw that day, there were people I walked up to I didn't know and asked them, you know, their name and their major and stuff like that. And it's, it's just natural. It comes naturally for me. So I do it, and I love it. Yeah. You, you can tell it meant a lot to them. Yes, sir. So uh, what is it that drives you, Chris, to be an educator? What, what, what led you to that? Is that something that you wanted to do for a long time? What were you going to be when you grew up when you were a kid? Well, actually, I thought I was going to be the first black president, but Bill Clinton messed that up, and then Obama. So, <laughs> uh, Honestly, uh, when I was young, I li- went to live with my great-grandmother in Shreveport, Louisiana, and, and I was second grade, I believe. And she and I went to a store to cash a check, and a young man, slightly older than me, said to my great-grandmother, Girl, put your mark right here. And my grandmother put an X on the check. 
And I'm looking at my grandmother, and I'm looking at this guy, and he starts counting out the money, and my little seven-year-old brain is like, my great-grandmother can't read and write. I wonder, can she count money? And it had a very profound impact on me. At that point, I was always a smart kid, but at that point, I knew I'm going to learn how to read and write and do arithmetic because I don't want to get cheated out of my money. I don't want anyone to tell me that something says something, and I don't know what it really says. So it had a very, very profound impact on me, knowing that my grandmother, great-grandmother, was illiterate. And so then you decided you were, that was not going to be you, so what were you going to be? Well, you know, I honestly did think I was going to be the first black president. But then when I got to college, uh, I saw some professors, and they had a really pro- profound impact on me. And I said, maybe one day I could be a professor. <laughs> it's a very uh, honorable profession. It, 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 I saw it as an opportunity for me to have an impact on young people's lives, and that's really critical and important for me. Growing up in Watts, I know more people that have been in prison and jails than they have been in college. So I, I was the first one in my family to attend a four-year college university, and luckily uh, my children are both college graduates and have gone to advanced degrees. Truman's working on his master's right now, and of course Gregory has his JD. And I'm starting to see other relatives, but education, if it wasn't for education, I really wouldn't be in this room with you today, Fran. I probably would be incarcerated. Mm-hmm. I definitely would be in the hood still. It, it's had a major and profound impact on my life. So tell me about your um, your journey with criminal justice. What is your specialty? What do you study and why? I'm a gang expert, and the reason I study gangs is because First, I wanted to know, as an undergraduate, what are people saying about people like me? I was never in a gang, but I lived in a gang neighborhood. I have a lot of friends who are gang members and former gang members. And I really wanted to know, what did the literature say about gang members? And I found it was often incorrect. Uh, there's a, a belief that all gang members are killers, that all gang members are bad all the time. And it's just not true. Most of the people I knew, I mean, you had a core group of people that were bad and some killers, but for the vast majority of people, they were hangers-on or wannabes. They weren't this deep criminal gang element that, that's projected. And I work as a gang expert now, and, and, and I found that it's really hard to beat a, a case if you've been accused of being a gang member committing a crime. It's just really hard. In criminal cases, as you know, someone is supposed the proof is supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. What I found in gang cases is more of a preponderance of evidence, and people are okay with that. And it's just really sad because I've seen a few miscarriages of justice in the court system. So what courses do you teach right now? Presently, uh, since I'm the CFA president, I get two courses released. I'm only teaching a criminal justice internship class. But I've also taught... Uh, Minorities in the criminal justice system, gangs in the criminal justice system, corrections, I intro to crim, and a couple other criminal justice courses. So I'm interested in um, how you, uh, as became CFA president, how you became interested in organized labor and what you think the purpose of organized labor is, because I think it is an important uh, partner on this campus, but in our system as well. Yes, and, and the California Faculty Association is now focusing on racial and social justice. Uh, we believe that we need to focus on the issue in our union and in our university, and it's really an important issue to me. Uh, having grown up poor and black, uh, 
I really see a lot of injustice in our society. And the union, you know, I've taught at another university that didn't have a union. And as a junior faculty, they made me chair of the program, and they had me working 12 months a year. But then when it came time for me to get tenure, because they were working me the way they did, with no release time for my administration, I didn't get tenure. And I felt totally exploited. And it's, it's a local Orange County school. And I have... I shouldn't say that too loudly, but I don't hold hold it against them. You know, I'm, I'm forgiving, but they really did use and exploit me, and the union would have protected me more if they would have had a union. You know, uh, I grew up in a union family with my, my dad as a member. My dad was a ship captain, and he was they had their own union, and um, uh, most of the uh, fathers, and because uh, because in my when I grew up, it was mostly the fathers that worked. To be quite frank, they were all in unions, whether it was the aerospace union or the stevedores uh, on the dock workers. Um, and when I became a lawyer and I became a management lawyer representing companies, I remember my dad kind of shaking his head and saying, "Man, you're on the dark side. You you know what 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 are you doing here?" And I remember telling him that. Uh, I think you can do more, actually, as a, as a lawyer representing management to protect employee rights than you can do as a union lawyer. Union lawyers can push, push, but they can't make the change happen. Right. Management lawyers can make it happen. But in my, you know, I've been a, uh, a management lawyer for more than 30 years, and in my experience, if you have a good relationship with the union that you work with, you can solve problems faster. Yes, sir. You can uh, dig out problems that wouldn't otherwise be found, um, and then things run more smoothly and more robustly. But you have to have an honest, open partnership in order to do that. Uh, and that's not always easy to do. Uh, so we, we talk about this all the time, but you know we need, to de- we need as an institution to develop our relationship with CFA now in the good times. Because these are the good times. Yes, they are. Because there will come a time where the times aren't so good, whether it's a collective bargaining problem or something like that, that frankly will be on your control and, and beyond mine as well. But we and so we'll find ourselves, uh, you uh, you know, maybe symbolically on different sides. But that I don't want that ever to change anything between us uh, if we have trust um, and transparency with each other. We'll be able to work through that. And you and I have had a, a disagreement on whether whether the state should should mandate the students take certain classes. You thought sure. not, and hey, I thought so. And hey, I still love you. Absolutely. And yeah. we're going to have different opinions because of our different positions. And well, that's because we're just human beings. Man. Absolutely. It's, it's okay to, to disagree. Um, I do think it's unique what we have, though, Fram. I don't think any president and CFA president are as close as you and I are. And it doesn't scare me. It actually excites me because I know that you and I are going to do things together. And we're going to make this university great together. And I see us as family. Uh, And you're absolutely right. There will be times that we'll disagree. But even that should strengthen our relationship. I agree 100%. I mean, that's what, you know, if I think about my family at home, I have disagreements all the time. But there's a uh, underlying strength, a bond that holds us together that brings us through it and makes us stronger together. Yeah. I mean, it, we also have a common faith together, um, in, uh, and that leads us to want to give back, which I also want to make sure people know about you, uh, Chris, and that is that you are someone that gives of yourself 
uh, you you don't tell people about this, but I'm going to go ahead and tell people about it. I, I know um, uh, as part of your uh, commitment to, to your faith that you and your family give back all the time. Now tell us what why you do that and what you do. Well, I'm the moderator of my church, and <clears throat> I... I would not be here today. I would not have had help from people. And my mother always gave. She was a cheerful giver. I mean, even to to the extent that it hurt her. And I learned valuable lessons from that. But I believe totally in giving. You know, our church is involved in mission trips and supporting and being the moderator in the church. Um, well, and I, you feed every week. I know that. And we, yes, I participate in the homeless ministry in Laguna Beach every Saturday morning from 8 to 9. Um, it's just part of my DNA, Fran. Uh, you know, I raised my boys that way. My youngest son's 23 and sponsoring two kids in Haiti. I mean, I don't know any 23-year-olds to do that, but it's just the way that we do it. And, and it's not something that you want to talk about or brag about because I'm proud of it, but I'm not doing it, you know, I'm not trying to be that one that, hey, this is what I'm doing, check me out. No, that's not, (laughs) that's not who I am. That's not what I do. And it's just really to see uh, people respond when you, when you give them uh, something. It's just, it's very rewarding for me. It's better than money in some ways. And I love money. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's authentic uh, giving is not not talking about it, but doing. That's authenticity as a human being. Is if you actually walk the walk rather than just talk the talk. And I, you know, that's part of the reason I love you because you do walk the walk, uh, which I really appreciate. Last Saturday, uh, the Criminal Justice Student Association of Cal State Fullerton came to Laguna Beach and they helped helped us feed the people. And it was just so good to see my students that I'm the advisor to the Criminal Justice Student Association in Laguna Beach feeding homeless people. And we all had our sweatshirts on with CJSA in Fullerton. It was just like I had my chest out there, very nice. proud of my students and just, you know, doing that thing to the fullest. It just felt so good to tighten to reaching higher, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, you're obviously a tremendous leader. Um, and, and you and I talked about this last week a little bit, and you know where I'm going. And you mentioned the dark side earlier. Um, have you thought about um, coming to administration and serving? And, and do you think you could make more of an impact on our students in the classroom or as an administrator? I really don't see myself going going there. I, I, I really am happy where I am. Um, I don't see myself being an administrator anytime soon. You know, I'm 60 years old now, and I know I don't look it because they say that black don't crack. However, (laughs) (laughs) um, it it would be an honor to be an administrator, but not for Chris Brown. Fair enough. So, Chris, you know, you've talked a little bit about your background, where you came from, and uh, and we know where you are now, and that's a long journey. Yes, sir. if you look at our students here at Cal State Fullerton, so many of our students are first in their family to go to college. So many of our students come from underserved communities, come from K-12 programs that are not um, uh, as robust in preparing them for a college as they could be and should be. And yet they come here and they succeed and they thrive. And when they graduate as Titans, uh, they can go toe-to-toe with Bruins or Trojans or Cougars or Anteaters or anybody else, um, but uh, 
it's a long journey. You know, you've you've walked that that road, and we have some uh, students here who are just starting that journey, trying to figure it out. So, what advice would you give to maybe uh, an incoming first-time freshman or to a community college transfer student that's just come here um, and is trying to find their way and their and their place uh, to succeed here? That's a very good question, Fram. And, and of course, having walked in those shoes. It's really frightening when you step into a, uni- a new setting, and especially if you're a person of color and you don't see anyone that looks like you. So the best advice I can give someone that's just starting out, and I've been a faculty advisor, always sitting in front of your classroom, <laughs> and I tell students that when they write their notes to go and rewrite their notes as soon as they can because it's always going to have blanks, and then go visit the professor. Go to the office hours and get to know your professor and ask them questions because what often happens is when you're afraid, you want to shrink away. You want to be in the back. You want to hide. You want anybody to see you. But you're not going to survive in a university unless you get involved. So get involved with an affinity group. You know, we have different groups for all all race, ethnicity, and, and uh, LGBT. And interests. Yes, and interests, exactly. So I would strongly encourage students to get involved in clubs, uh, get involved in affinity groups. Get to know your professor because at some point, you may want a letter of recommendation, and it, it never surprises me how often students will come to me and ask, can I have a letter of recommendation? They've never come to my office hours. I don't know who they are, and they want me to write a letter of recommendation. Like, hey, you need to go to a professor you know who knows you because they'll be able to write a better letter for you than I can. And I'm sitting on a panel actually in a few weeks uh, talking about letters of recommendation, and I just really strongly encourage students to get involved in groups and don't be afraid to reach out and ask someone, do you want to study together? Because generally you succeed if you're doing something with someone else versus by yourself. It's like in the church, we tell people, hey, find a small group, right? If you find a small group, you're going to be here with us. If you get, you're going to be out there by yourself, you're going to get lost and you're going to fall away. Same thing with students. Yeah, I you know um, one of the, ma- the the great strengths of our university is, uh, despite the fact that we're the biggest CSU, and we uh, you know the, essentially the biggest undergraduate program in the state if you look at it uh, without graduate programs, um, we have classes that are small, and relative to what the classes are at other universities, and there is a an amazing opportunity. Uh, you, if, if you are at a, an R1 institution like Irvine or UCLA, nothing wrong with that. They're great institutions, but you're more likely to be taught by a graduate student. Uh, if you're at Cal State Fullerton, you can be taught by a professor, by a full professor who's going to know what's going on and who is and in a small group where you can get to know them and be mentored. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Taking advantage of that, that's why this works, uh, and that's why we can do this. So I want to take take a minute, and, and uh, you know, uh, t- today uh, I was at the um, the uh, uh, outstanding professor, outstanding professor uh, lecture by um, uh, our professor, and he spoke about uh, masculinity and uh, uh, positive and uh, constructive ways to address masculinity, and. Uh, you know, you're a big and imposing guy uh, physically, but you are a gentle giant in my eyes, and that's what makes you um, 
accessible and um, and uh, uh, someone that attracts people to uh, be a part of you. What does masculinity mean to you? And, and what would you say to especially our men of color on our campus, our black, uh, black and brown men, about masculinity and how they ought to deal with it? You know, that's a good question, Fran. And, of course, my, my answers change with my maturity and education. Uh, coming from a poor urban area, uh, the perception of masculinity is you have to be tough and hard and male, right? And very, very stereotypically masculine identity. Uh, I understand that it, it, you don't have to be male to have mescu- masculine demeanor. And, uh, you know, it's funny because... I remember times when people would seem effeminate and they would, their masculinity would be challenged because they weren't as rough and tough and tumble. And it's just total misperception of what masculinity is, right? Um, yeah, and I've learned a lot from Dr. V. He's uh, given me some insights on, on masculinity because, of course, if you're a gay male, especially a gay black man, you can't be masculine because you're gay, right? Well, that's not totally true. Absolutely <laughs> not true. You know, ignorance uh, sometimes in certain areas just predominate, and you just have to tell them, educate yourself, because it's almost like blaming the victim, right? You don't know that you're doing more harm than you're doing good by blaming the victim, right? We need to step outside and educate ourselves and understand that masculinity is broad. It's not narrow, and it's not simple. It could be very complex. <laughs> yeah, and I think the other thing that we would want to make sure that our students know is that there is a, a there's a place and space for everyone here. Yes, sir. Uh, and that, you're welcome. Um, there are so many positive traits to the idea of masculinity, which is responsibility, yes. caring, um, uh, protection, yes. standing up for each other, yeah, um, and finding the right accountability group. Uh, of men and women who can hold you accountable and help you in that in that journey, and it doesn't matter, um, you know, with the the stereotypical ideas of masculinity any more than the stereotypical ideas of femininity. Right. Uh, it's really important that our community, uh, that that our students know that this is a community that understands and accepts everyone uh, as part of that. And I think that they see how you and Julie are with people. And you just open, and you treat everyone well. And that's really important. When you get that direction from the top, it really does set a different tone. And, and it, it, it really, um, this universe in many ways reflects you and she. Fam, and it's a good thing. You know what also is a great thing is that there are um, periods in your life, there are times in your life where you can, you might want to call it reinvent yourself. You might want to call it rediscover yourself, um, uh, represent yourself. Um, and uh, I've had those. Uh, you know, I was a different person in college uh, than I was when I went and worked at a law firm. And then I was a different person at that law firm than when I went and worked at the chancellor's office. And each time there's an opportunity to redefine who you are. And um, what's been amazing for me on this campus is I've got to do I've got to do some redefining of myself as well. Um, you know, I've surprised myself about who I can be and uh, what I can do uh, that's different than who I used to be. Sometimes Julie looks at me and goes, "Who are you, man?" Uh, and that's a good thing. It's a good opportunity to um, share your heart, 
share share who you are. Uh, be more authentic with people. Be more transparent with people. And that's because of the place this is uh, that allows you to do that. You know, we are a rigorous and um, uh, serious academic institution. No, let nobody ever uh, think otherwise. We, we are committed to preparing our students not just for their first job or their second job or their third job, but for their life, for yes, their future. Absolutely. But to do that, we can still be a caring and uh, collaborative an accepting place where we do that together. Yes, absolutely. And you're you are a huge part of that. I I can I'll never forget uh, being in the gym, and <laughs> the lights just went out. Uh, being in the gym and introducing you, or trying to introduce you to Ize, and you said to both of those, you said, Matt, I'm an African American professor on this campus. He's an African American male. Of course, I know him. <laughs> <laughs> it was eye opening for me, and. But I don't think you're an anomaly. I think there are other, I know there are other faculty and staff out there um, reaching out to populations that need it most. And uh, so you're a huge part of what Fram's talking about. So uh, Matt, Matt raises something that I think is really important that we address, and that is um, the need for greater diversity um, in our um, faculty, in our staff, and, and for even though we have a very diverse student body, in our student body as well. African Americans in particular are not, um, you know, we have more African Americans as a percentage on our campus uh, than there are in Orange County, but that's it's still not at all what it needs to be to have a robust community to make uh, uh, black men and women feel welcome here. Um, and that's something we're working on. It's in our strategic plan. Um, and long term, I am convinced and convicted that we will change that and we will have a more diverse faculty that represents and reflects our student body. That said, in the meantime, what is it that all our faculty can do as uh, faculty members to be more available as mentors and guides and uh, creating affinity with all our students, not just the students that see themselves in them directly? How can we access and and help and guide those students? You know, it's interesting that you say that, Fram, and I know you are aware that the university, as it relates to faculty, has kind of changed its model in the past 20 years, whereas we used to have a majority of tenure track, tenure faculty, now we have a majority of lecturers. And it really changes the flavor of the university because think about it. A lecture is someone who, and I love our lecture faculty, and we support them wholeheartedly as a union, but they often have to go to multiple campuses. They aren't paid as well, so they don't really have the time necessarily to invest in the students at the campuses because they're going to multiple campuses, and it's it's really a, a challenge for some of them especially someone that's teaching maybe one course or even two courses to have the amount of time that, say, a tenure-track faculty could have. So one way we could do it is hire more tenure-track faculty. And I know that there's an initiative statewide that's been pushing for that, and our union is pushing for it. And I think that the powers that be could realize a lot of gains if they saw the value in having more tenure-track faculty on the campus. So that's one thing. As well, as a faculty of color, we suffer from what's called cultural taxation. 
Absolutely. People come to Chris Brown, they say, hey, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, I want you to do... And, and one of the reasons I probably didn't get tenure early because I didn't know how to say no because I, want, I wanted to fulfill all those needs. But you can't do it by yourself. And, and it becomes a burden and overwhelming, and it could lead to burnout. So one way to do that is to have more of us available and we won't be taxed so harshly. Uh, but it's hard. Uh, people... A lot of people really do fear coming to Orange County. They call it the orange curtain. Man, don't step behind the orange curtain. Not to mention, I mean, there are physical impediments like the cost of living here. Uh, people cannot afford a house. Uh, we have people that are food challenged. And you say, hey, have a master's PhD, and you're homeless. You have enough money to buy food. We need to, we need to put more value on educators because the way it looks, we don't value them. And that's not to say anybody in this room, because I know everybody's perspective in this room. However, friend, we need to change this dynamic. We need to have more tenure track faculty. We need to, I mean, of course, we can't make housing and, and those kind of things affordable in Orange County. And it's nice we have faculty housing. That was a great benefit. And I'm really happy that Cal State Fullerton did that. And we need to invest more in that. Well, you know, I don't. I, I actually agree with you, Chris. Uh, uh, the value of, of tenure track faculty is is beyond just the relationship that they are able to create with the students. It's also the service that they provide to the institution, um, and that's why over the last two years we have definitely focused on increasing tenure track faculty. We hired fifty two tenure track faculty this year, uh, more than I think we've done ever yes. on this campus. We promoted 59 uh, faculty this year uh, to uh, in the tenure process, yes, which sir. is important. But we can't, um, we can't falter with that. We've got to continue with that. But we also have to, we, we know we have the uh, uh, financial limitations that go along with that. Um, and we, and so um, our, um, our non-tenure track faculty, our lecturers, will always be with us, yeah. and they are integral parts of our um, of our uh, mission as well. Yeah. And they are fully integrated and important to that. I know CFA believes that, yes, sir, um, and I believe that as well. Uh, what would you say to our uh, uh, faculty members that are not men or women of color, uh, are not from? Um, underserved communities, but are um, looking for ways to uh, help in the development and the mentorship and um, create access um, and uh, uh, persistence for our students. How would, you, how would you tell them to approach that? That's a really good question, Fran. And I know a lot of majority faculty believe that they don't have a place in trying to promote and, and perpetuate the success of, of, of students of color, but they're integrally important. And just don't be afraid to reach out to a, a faculty of color or a student of color and say, hey, what can I do to help you? Because it means so much. One of my mentors, Don Rothman, writing professor at UC Santa Cruz, white, middle-aged, but he became my father in many ways in Santa Cruz. And when his children were born, I became like their big brother, and I babysat for them. Same thing in graduate school. So it meant a lot to me that, that this white professor, which I didn't see him as white, he's just Don Rothman, you know, <laughs> uh, my father, my big brother, and he was always important to me. I mean, to the 
day he passed away. I mean, I always loved him. The same with Gil Geis and Henry Pontel. I mean, these were people that were just titans in my life that just helped me immensely, and it meant a lot to me. And students know if you're genuine and you want to help them. Um, don't be afraid. A lot of faculty are afraid. And I just need to say, step out on faith. Don't be afraid. Do what you can, and you'll get rewards way beyond what you ever thought by helping someone and not expecting anything in return. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. And as you probably saw, the lights were starting to go off, I think, as it was 5 o'clock. <laughs> so we're, we need to wrap it up. But, um, Chris, really appreciate you coming on. This is only our third episode, and, and it's it's been a great one for sure. Yeah, Chris, anything uh, you want to share with our listeners, which are we're hopefully are a mixture of students and faculty and staff, uh, anything you want to say about uh, what you uh, about Cal State Fullerton or about the future before we why sign your sons on? went here? Yeah. Well, I love this institution, and I think we're going to do great things, and we're doing great things. Hey, keep that Titan pride first and foremost, because hey, we're family. Whether we're faculty, whether we're staff, administrators, students, we're all here to make this institution great. Yeah. We are the best. Absolutely. Yeah. We are the best. You can call it Titan family, Titan nation, whatever you want to call it. We're just all Titans together. We have a lot of Titan pride. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thank you, friend. Thank you, I love you, brother. I love you, too. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fram and Friends, a collaboration between Titan Radio and Cal State Fullerton. For more episodes like the one you just heard, visit titanradio.org.